In the fifth grade, actually it was the summer after fifth grade, I had the opportunity to go to Camp Henry. Camp Henry is up in Nuego, Nuego area, and it's a beautiful place. It was and still is a wonderful camp, but I hated it. I hated almost every minute of it. Now, it is a beautiful place. It's located on a lake. It's a beautiful lake. We had the opportunity to swim. I even earned a blue badge, which meant that I could swim out to the, to the, to the shore, to the station, to that raft that's out in the deep end. The food, the food was okay. They had a constant stock of koozie peanut butter. I think the Koozie family sponsored Camp Henry in some way. The cabins, they were pretty nice. Were a lot of nice people. The counselors were all really nice. Other campers were really nice. But I hated it. I almost hated every minute of it. Except for the night where we played spin the bottle. (laughs) But other than that, I hated it. You know why I hated it? because I was homesick. I just wanted to go home. As nice as Camp Henry was, I just wanted to be home. I missed my neighborhood. I missed my house. I missed my own bed. I missed my mom's cooking. I don't even like peanut butter. But more than all of those things, I missed my mom and I missed my dad and I missed my brothers. I was homesick. I just wanted to go home. Now I know some of you are resonating with this. I can see it on half of your face. I realize that some of you are resonating with this because you've experienced that same type of thing when you went to summer camp when you were a kid. You just felt homesick. You just wanted to go, yes, it was a nice place but you just wanted to go home. Now by now, all of you have figured out that this message probably isn't about summer camp. You probably have a bit of an idea where I'm headed. Because in each one of us, there's a longing for something more. There's, a, there's an understanding that this world can't be all there is. There's an ache deep inside of us that says there has to be something more. And we feel that ache, we feel that longing deep down inside. It's because we're just homesick. We just want to go home. The Apostle Peter wants us to understand this. In one of his letters, he wrote that we are foreigners in exiles in this world. You see, we're not home. We're foreigners in exiles in this world. And because we're foreigners in exiles in this world, We have that ache down deep inside. We have that longing in the depths of our soul, longing for something more, wanting something more. 
It was interesting, Jesus, shortly before he was crucified, he has a conversation with his disciples. His disciples know what's coming. Jesus has informed them what's coming and you can almost, you can almost feel their anxiety and their discouragement. You have to understand, you've got to be thinking that they're wondering, they're thinking to themselves, there has to be something more. And so Jesus shares some words of encouragement with them. These words are recorded in John chapter 14. And I'd like to share with you how these words are recorded through the message paraphrase. Look what Jesus says. Don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so that you can live where I live. Don't be discouraged. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Jesus is saying here, he's declaring his love for his disciples. And at the same time, he's declaring his love and his love for you and his love for me. And he's saying, I'm going to go. And I'm going to go. And my father's preparing a home. And he's making a room for you. I know that this morning... Some of you are discouraged. Some of you are feeling anxious, depressed. Some of you this morning may be feeling defeated. And you're wondering, what's going on? My life isn't what I thought it was going to be. Or maybe right now I'm experiencing a struggle and I just can't completely wrap my arms around the struggle. I can't wrap my arms around the difficulty that I'm experiencing. And you're thinking to yourself, there has to be more than this. I know there's some of you who have a loved one who right now is close to death. I have a good friend whose mom, as I speak, is close to dying. And you have to be thinking, there has to be more than this. That discouragement, that feeling of defeat, that anxiety, that depression, ultimately, is just a form of being homesick. We all just want to go home. So this morning, we're gonna look at home. We're gonna look at the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. All of the judgments of Revelation are complete. All of the plagues of Revelation have passed. And now God reveals to us our eternal home. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. 
Revelation chapter 21. It's found on page 1004 in the Bible that the church provides. And as we come to this text, I want you to know that this is it. This is the culmination of all of history. All of the book of Revelation has pointed to this moment. And not just all of the book of Revelation, the whole Bible has pointed to this moment. In fact, all of history has pointed to this moment. Since Adam and Eve lost their place in the Garden of Eden and sin reigned on earth, God's plan has always been to eradicate sin and to live in communion with his people forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. This is it. This is home. And I hope this morning, this sermon makes you more homesick. In our scripture reading this morning that was read for us at the beginning of the service, we heard from Revelation 21 through Revelation 22, verse five. Our focus in this sermon will be on Revelation 21, verses one through seven, which is, an, which is essentially a thesis statement for those two chapters, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. This morning, we're going to look at a place, a person, and a promise. Do you like how I did that? That is called alliteration. A place, a person, and a promise. First, the place. Let's look at what John saw. Revelation 21, beginning in verse one. This is John. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. These words kind of bring us back to the first words of the Bible. Genesis is the first book, the first chapter, the first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we read that something much greater, much better is going to take its place. A new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Now notice, it says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Peter tells us what happened to the first heaven and the first earth in 2 Peter chapter three where he writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how God is going to burn up the first heaven and the first earth. But here in Revelation 21, the main point is not the destruction. The main point is the recreation of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And just like the first heaven and the first earth are places, these are places as well. And look at verse two. 
Look at this. We don't go up to heaven. Instead, God is going to bring it down to earth. He's going to bring down a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Now, most of us naturally think, and I don't know how we get this, it might be the cartoons we watched when we were kids, but most of us naturally think that we are going to go up to heaven, that we're going to go up and be with God in heaven, but this tells us that God is bringing this awesome place down to us. But then look, we get a description of what this place is like. First, now to be clear, it is a place. It is an actual physical place. We're not floating around or flying on wings in some ethereal cloud-like place. In Revelation 21, look at beginning in verse 10, we read that this is a city with walls and gates and a foundation. Now, I'm sure that at this point, some of you are asking or you're starting to ask, is this description literal or symbolic? And if you're not asking that question yet, you're likely to start asking that question when we get to the streets of gold. But I hope by now, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, that you realize that the literal and the symbolic work together. Look at this cross. This cross is actually literal. It is right there. I can knock on the wood. It is a literal thing, but it is also symbolic. It also represents the death of Jesus. And we have the same type of thing working itself out in the book of Revelation. The literal and the symbolic work themselves together. We've seen a blending of the two. So I don't actually know if there are walls and there are gates and there are foundations, but the main point here is that this description describes a physical place. Second, in verses 15 through 17, not only do we see there's a lot of calculations, there's a lot of numbers, there's a lot of measurements, so we know that there's going to be some math in heaven, which I know doesn't excite all of us, but we learn that this heaven is huge in its scope and in its size. Now, without doing all the math and all the calculations for you, suffice it to say that the new Jerusalem is huge in its scope and its size. If you place the new Jerusalem in the United States, it would stretch from Canada in the north to Mexico in the south, It would stretch from the Appalachian Mountains, that's Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania in the east, from the Appalachian Mountains to California in the west. Two million square miles, over two million square miles of space. But that's just the surface area. You notice John goes to great detail to explain to us the height of the city as well. And if you do those calculations, it comes out that the city itself is 660,000 stories high. Can you even fathom the size? Two million, over two million square miles of space, yet 660,000 stories high? What's the highest building in the world? 120 stories, maybe? 
660,000 stories high. Now, is that literal? Is that symbolic? The point is, is that this is huge. I don't know if this means we're going to have wings or we're just going to have to climb a lot of stairs. (laughs) The size and the scope is massive. So this is a physical place. It's huge in its size and in its scope. And then third, although verse one tells us that there'll no longer be any sea, the new heaven and the new earth will be a place of immense beauty. The new Jerusalem is stunning. God is a God of beauty. Think about the beauty and the majesty of the world that we currently live in. Think of the mountains. Think of the stars on a clear summer night. Think of a sunrise on a misty morning. Think of a sunset over Lake Michigan. Think of the beauty that is in our current world. But our current world is a fallen, broken world. Think of this heavenly city, the beauty. Just imagine but I'm not even completely able to do that justice. John gives us a description of the beauty. And again, it doesn't really matter if this is literal or symbolic. Either way, the beauty and the majesty, the splendor is almost beyond imagination. Listen to what John writes in chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. It's incredible beauty and splendor. There's not enough superlatives in the world to accurately describe, to give proper description to what heaven is like, to the beauty of heaven. Words limit us, but it's sure nice to imagine. To me, as I read these descriptions, I get excited. I get excited about the fact that heaven is a physical place, that it's huge in size and in its scope, and I'm almost completely overwhelmed by the beauty of heaven. But I recognize that some of you might not be so excited about heaven. I remember for all, in, earlier, I was not excited about heaven. I often thought to myself, if heaven is anything like this church service, I'm not really sure I want to go. I know some of you may feel that way. But I would suggest that in most cases, our expectations fall considerably short of what heaven is actually going to be like. That's why I think John adds this last line about brides and grooms, about husbands and wives. 
wives. He says, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I think John here is trying to raise the excitement level of heaven. Heaven's not like a boring church service. We're not going to be flying around in the sky just floating in never, never land. No. It's like one of the best days that anyone could ever experience. It's like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. During a wedding, everyone is focused on the bride when she walks down the aisle. Everyone looks at the bride and thinks to themselves, oh, how beautiful. Look at how put together. Look at how special she looks. As she walks down the aisle, the excitement grows in the room. Everybody has stood to recognize her presence. Everyone is excited for what is about to happen. And no one is more excited than the groom, than the husband who is waiting for her to meet him. I speak from experience. I remember the day well over 30 years ago when Jen walked down the center aisle and I was waiting overwhelmed with excitement because she was coming to me. That's what John is saying here. It's like the best day you could ever imagine. But there's more to heaven than just a place. You see, heaven is much more than a place. Heaven is a person. Look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Well, John is viewing the descending city. A loud voice diverts his attention. The loud voice announces the dwelling of God among women and men, the God of the universe, the one who has created all things, the one who sustains all things in his love for you and his love for me chooses to dwell among us. He chooses to live among you and me. This is the fulfillment. It is the ultimate fulfillment of the name Emmanuel, God with us. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 24, verse seven, where God declares that they will be my people and I will be their God. God proclaims that he is going to live with his people. This is it. God with us. Heaven is much more about a person than a place. When I was at Camp Henry, I missed my house. I told you I missed my neighborhood. I missed my mom's cooking. But all of that was secondary to the fact that I missed my mom and I missed my dad and I missed my brothers. You see, home is ultimately not about a place. It's about a person. 
I would like you to imagine, to think about the person you love most in this world. The person you love most in this world. Think about that person. It may be your mom or your dad. It may be a brother, it may be a sister, it may be your wife, it may be your husband, it may be a good friend, but I want you to think about the person you love most in this world. Got the person in your head? Nod at me, give me some acknowledgement. You got the person in your head? Thank you. The person you love most in this world. Now, imagine that you have not seen that person for five years. You have not seen that person for five years. And not only have you not seen them for five years, you've had very little contact with them for five years. But a date's been set. A date's been set where you are going to reunite with the person that you love most in this world. The date's been set and you're looking forward to the date. And not only has the date been set where you are going to be reunited with the person you love most in this world, but you are going to be reunited with that person in Hawaii, which is probably one of the most beautiful places in this world. The question I have for you is, do you care where you are being reunited? No, you don't care. It could be Borculo for all you care. If you live in Borculo, please don't take offense, but you're not Hawaii. I'm glad I lost my smell from COVID too, because when you think about, anyway, that's an aside. The person you love most in the world, you're going to be reunited with them after five years. It doesn't matter if you meet in Hawaii. You see, that's how it should be with Jesus. Our excitement to meet Jesus is what drives our desire for home. So it's not only about a place. It's much more about a person. But even more than that, God's presence among us, us dwelling with God, him demonstrating his love and his personal care for us, the presence of God has amazing results. Look at verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God's presence means the absence of all that is evil. God's presence means the absence of all that is disruptive. He removes all sources of sorrow and the debilitating effects of sin and suffering have been taken away because of God's presence. Look what it says. There's going to be no more death in heaven, no one is going to die. There will be no need to dig graves. You will no longer ever have to stand next to the bedside of someone who is dying or next to the casket of someone who has died. No more death. It says there's going to be no more mourning or sorrow of any kind. This speaks of all the pain and the troubles and the heartaches we experience in this life. No more disappointments, no more trials, no more suffering. The persecutions, all of the failures that we experience, gone. Not only no more death or mourning, 
there'll be no more crying. This refers to those times when we're absolutely overwhelmed and broken by the events of this life and we're at the end of our rope and our only response is to cry. No more. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. This word refers to labor, toil, or great trouble. It refers to all the diseases, the disappointments, and the disasters we encounter as we move through this life. None of that will exist in heaven. There's no more hospitals. There's no more doctor's visits. There's no more pharmacies. There's no more broken homes. There's no more broken hearts. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because of God's presence, there is uninterrupted happiness and peace. Heaven is much more about dwelling with a person than the particulars of a place. So heaven is a physical place. It's much more about a person. And then third, the promise The description of heaven is amazing. It is crazy amazing. Can I get an amen? Amen. This description of heaven is over the top. It's so amazing that for most of us, it comes to a point of being hard to imagine, even hard to believe. And I think that John understands this. He understands what's going on in our minds, so he shares with us a promise from God himself. First, there is the setup to the promise. Look at verse five. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. My friends, these are the very words of God himself. God declares that he is the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's simply saying here that he is the beginning of all things and that he is the end of all things. With this title, he declares himself the sovereign ruler of all the universe. He declares himself the sovereign ruler over everything. He declares that he and he alone is in control of everything. He's the one who controls both ends of history. And he is sovereign over everything in between. And out of his declaration of sovereignty, he makes a promise. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. The promise is that the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem will be the home for all who believe in Jesus. 
This, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful promise. So many people are thirsty for something. I know that some of you this morning are thirsty. You're thirsty for something. You have that ache. You have that feeling. You know that there just has to be more. You're thirsty. And so many of us try to quench our thirst by striving to achieve more, by striving to attain more wealth, by trying to pursue comfort or pleasure. Maybe the pursuit is for fame, for acknowledgement, for recognition. And I get it, I understand it's because you're thirsty and you think that there's one of these things is going to satisfy that thirst. If I just had more money, if somebody just saw me, if I was just more comfortable, then I wouldn't be so thirsty. Here, God says, if you're thirsty, I have the solution. God makes it very clear that all who are victorious, all who overcome, will inherit heaven. He will satisfy your thirst by providing you the water of life. That is a symbol of eternal life. A new heaven a new earth, a new Jerusalem. It's a place, but more than that, it's a person. And God has promised that if you believe in Jesus, it will be your forever home. And when I say forever, I mean your forever home. You know my Camp Henry experience? It eventually ended. I remember the Saturday morning well. We came to breakfast. There was peanut butter on the table. We came for breakfast, we had breakfast, and we knew that after breakfast, our parents were going to arrive. Some kids went back to their cabin to pack up. I had already packed up. Some kids went for a last swim. Some kids walked and talked with friends. I went to the dirt parking lot and waited for my parents and my brother. Because I knew I was going home. There's a lot of implications from the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But there's one implication that stands out to me maybe above all the others. As I studied and thought and prayed about this text, one implication rose to the top. Do you understand how much work God put in just so he could live with you and with me? 
Do you understand the amount of love that God has for you to declare these future plans for you? God loves you so much that he has created a place, a physical place where you are going to spend eternity. And not only has he declared that place to be for your future, he has declared, he has deemed it well that he is going to reside with you for all eternity. The God who is sovereign over this universe, the God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, wants to live with you because he loves you. There's a few verses that are tucked into the end of Romans 8. And these verses this past week have completely new meaning for me. I hope they do for you as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord knowing all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. My friends, God loves you. And if you're homesick this morning, he is preparing for you a home, a place where you will forever be with him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning's text is not only a description of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. As beautiful as heaven is, as wonderful as it will be, for each one of us, this message is more than a message about a place. It is a message about a person. It is a message about a God who loves his creation, who loves his people so much that he wants to dwell with us. Ultimately, Heavenly Father, we recognize that this is a message of love. And I pray that each one of us would recognize, understand, and feel the love that you have for each one of us. And now, Lord, I pray that out of that love, we would worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. 
If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.